Man, I hope you enjoyed that last episode with Dr. Leanne Campbell. I know I did and, and learned a lot. And good news, we have another one. She joins us again to talk about applying EFT to individuals. Welcome to the Leading Edge in Emotionally Focused Therapy with your hosts, Dr. James Hawkins and Dr. Ryan Reyna. EFT is a dynamic model that humbles even the most seasoned therapists. Together, we want to come alongside you as you continually push the leading edge of your understanding and application of this wonderful model developed by Dr. Sue Johnson. All right. Welcome back. We already introduced our guests and we're thankful for that great conversation, even on attachment injuries. But some of you might not know, but we should know. E, uh, Leanne is also the co-writer on the EFT Primer, particularly looking at work with individuals. Her and Sue, go to the ISF website page and you can see also they got some great videos. I did get to watch some of those one day when I was on the bike. So that was exciting to watch your work there, Leanne. Truly thankful for you and Sue and the work that you're doing to help expand EFT to also in the work with individuals. Really grateful for that. So, you know, what I hear with with the eFit training is a lot, a lot of it is pretty similar in some ways to the process is the same map, same attachment orientation as we do with our couples. But where it gets a little bit different is in move three of the tangle when we are getting ready to set up the enactment, but in, in eFit we call it the encounter. So kind of talk to me, Leanne, about what, how does that look different around doing these encounters, these corrective emotional experiences when we're working with individuals? Right. Thank you. Thank you for having me on again. Um, so, yes. Yeah. EFT is a relational therapy, where, regardless of where, whether we're working with individuals, couples, or families. So, you know, to cite Irvin Yalom, he um, would say that in individual therapy, we get to know the clients that live in our character, um, the characters that live in our clients' minds. So those are the key attachment figures that have been pivotal in shaping models of self and other. So again, when we sit with our clients, we tune in um, to their experiences. Um, in move one of the tango is the same, but we don't have the partner in the room or the family member in the room, but we do want to tune in to how do clients um, tune into themselves? How do they move emotionally in the world and how does that impact their most important relationships? And um, again, attachment theory is a developmental theory and a theory of personality. So we are listening in to uh, what kinds of experiences have shaped our clients, um, resiliency factors, as well as um, different relationship experiences that may have put our clients at risk. And all of this helps us to create um, a roadmap, chart the course within the EFT three-stage framework that is exact same, that's right, across modalities, stabilization, um, restructuring self and system, and then consolidation. So, <clears throat> excuse me, in move three of the tango, the encounters, James, thank you, um, that you highlighted, we don't have the partner in the room physically, but most certainly we have lots of characters in the room um, that are impacting our client and we get to know those people. So when we set up the encounter, it might be with a key attachment figure that is currently in our 
client's life, or it might be with a spiritual figure. It might be even with a continuing bond. Um, we um, use that term in attachment language. Somebody who's deceased but still um, has a big impact can be a resource potentially in the therapy process and for our client um, outside the therapy process. Or of course, it could. We could also um, set up an encounter with the therapist. All right, that sounds good. Because sometimes, you know, and I don't know if this happens for you. Probably not. I don't know. Maybe it's just James. But I'll be vulnerable. You know, I can do pretty good when there's that attachment figure in the room and really getting traction. What does it look like for you when there's an individual and they're kind of talking and they're probably talking about the characters? How do you get traction and getting down into that individual's emotional experience? And then like even looking at like then turning that over into that encounter. I mean, I don't know. Is it the and I know some ways you just talked about it. But like, you know, how do you set up even if it's like doing that encounter with an imagined other? What does that look like for Leanne? Yeah, good question. Well, there's lots of variability. And again, we tune into our clients' windows of tolerance or their capacity. So we pay attention again, um, you know, with attention to those elements of the care model, to how our clients, uh, the context in which they live and have lived, including the intergenerational context, we tune into attachment again, developmentally, um, what kinds of experiences have um, likely had an impact and how did that play out relationally mm -hmm. when you were bullied at school who did you turn to what did that look like um and and what's the key question the key question is um uh, around affect regulation was that 10 year old able to move with and through the emotion um that would have impacted that individual and and key is, was there a relationship to rely on? Again, we know that people don't encounter vulnerability alone. So there was nobody, you tried to reach out, nobody heard you, saw you. Um, so of course, what do children do? They have no choice but to either shut down, um, lash out, or some combination of both. And that helps us, this gives us information about um, the, these strategies. And again, Rigidity and flexibility have a lot to do with how pervasive those kinds of relationship experiences were and what our clients had to do to survive those kinds of um, difficulties at various times in their life. And again, development matters. So we're paying attention to all of that through the lens of attachment. Of course, we're creating a safe haven alliance and we're tuning into emotion. And in EFET, we talk a lot about, um, you know, emotional handles and um, different kinds of aspects of um, core features of emotional disorders like numbing out and um, flashbacks and so on and so forth. So once we have established all of that, then we can um, be guided by our client's story, by their narrative. And sometimes that narrative is coherent and other times it's not in terms of how we set up these move three encounters and, and the key goal is um, to create corrective emotional experiences, to allow our clients to feel what was intolerable to feel, unsafe to feel, or in the case of first responders, for example, inappropriate to feel at the time of some 
type of event that now is a barrier to the organic growth process that we believe in from an attachment EFT perspective. And um, so an example might be, and um, yeah, well, maybe I've spoken a lot. I don't know if you have a question. I can give lots of examples. No, keep going. I think that's really good. It's, as you said that, I was just thinking about when I work with um, individuals or couples with a history of addiction, you know, and, and the addiction was so strong at one point, they had to learn <laughs> to, to find their triggers and to sort of shut that down just to survive which they probably needed to for a short time. But here we are years later, and they've learned to see an emotion as the enemy, right? So now the very thing that kept them alive at one point is preventing growth. I kind of hear that as a theme. Um, that is what you're saying. Am I hearing that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I so, yeah. So as people shut themselves off emotionally, they also shut off access to themselves. And the core goal, the key goal of EFIT is to expand the sense of self. And how do we do that? By accessing emotion, core vulnerabilities. And sometimes in the case of trauma and especially developmental or complex trauma, the gateway to emotion is through the body. So there's lots of variation in terms of how we work with clients. But, you know, the, the thing that comes to mind actually is, um, you know, if it's actually been a part of the model from the very beginning. So I often think about and talk about the client, one of my very first clients that I had at the Center for Psychological Services back in the 90s when I was working with Sue and with others who came to me. And um, one of the ways that we hold our clients in individual therapy is it's very similar in the couple context, but we don't have a physical other, um, either as a resource or as a cue uh, in terms of accessing emotion, which, you know, we talked earlier in the context of attachment injury, it's not hard. We often don't have to do anything to heighten emotion in the couple context, but we might in the individual therapy context. Um, so, I'll just maybe walk with me um, with this client that I met for the first time at the beginning of what was my, the very, very, very beginning of my um, growth as a therapist. And so he would have got on the bus, traveled across the big city of Ottawa, not as big as many American cities and other cities in the world, but um, he, for him, that was a big city and especially given his experience. And then he would have had to walk up the stairs into the Vanier building, get in the elevator with other people and then come to the clinic on the sixth floor and meet me for the first time, which was a big deal. And he asked to see a woman because he'd always had trouble with women women, he said. So when I met him, and now you can be with me, with him, and um, he was wearing a sports coat and a cap and swimming goggles and earplugs. And that tells us a lot about his experience in the world. I mean, he still makes me cry. Um, anyway, so what do we do from, you know, through the lens of attachment? We get curious about what this person's history is and what this um, his story has been. And he tells me 
that he's traveled across Canada. He keeps moving, but it's, his problems keep following him. Nothing gets better. He tells me he lives alone. He tells me he won't go to the mall because there's too many mirrors at the mall. So what am I listening to? I'm listening to his model of self. Um, he, he doesn't like the mirrors. He, he covers his mirror at home with a towel. And his apartment feels, this is the part that's still like a coffin. That, that is, he feels dead inside. And then he begins to tell me a bit about his childhood and um, is colored not um, surprisingly by loss and trauma and aloneness, no sense of belonging, nobody to turn to. So what did he do? He had to shut off. He had to numb out and, um, and resolve to be alone. And so how do I access his emotion? How do I access him? How do I help him to access him? He tells me that he's a writer and this is the days of newspapers that are printed and that he writes to the newspaper he writes editorials sometimes he writes to himself and responds other times he just writes and if somebody responds great and it's always anonymous and he can just be um he can hide behind whatever kind of name he decides to use so i ask him to bring in his newspaper clippings and it's there that i get to know some of the themes um, of his life and his experiences. And over time, he, um, he risks taking off his goggles and see, and at first he just looks out of the corner of his eye at me and doesn't um, make full eye contact because that would be way too risky, way too terrifying. And again, tells us so much about his model of self and his capacity to trust. And then over time, he takes um, out his earplugs during session, but not on the bus. And then over time, uh, as we, as he begins to engage with what Bowlby describes as frightening, alien, and unacceptable emotions, he begins to have compassion for himself, which is the key antidote to shame, and uh, to washing away that shame, is to have some self-compassion. And then over time, we can begin to set up encounters. Um, and the goal is not to necessarily resolve anything with some of the people who have hurt him. The goal is for him to have a voice, the voice that he didn't have as a little boy and as a young man and at other times in his life and to feel what would have been absolutely intolerable, unsafe to feel when he was alone. Uh, and this time he can be in the company of me in the background, the therapist, and this adult self that's now more resourced. By the end of all of this, he's able to volunteer, he's joined an outdoor club, he has some relationships, he goes to the mall, and most poignantly, his apartment no longer feels like a coffin. <laughs> Wow. Thank you, Leanne. Like that was a great way to answer the question. I just got caught up in the story and taking notes, man. Like, and so move three way, you're really making it come alive for me is, and it makes sense with even the EFT map is reaccessing those disowned parts of self and putting it into words again. And that in EFIT, it's not that we got to go and get resolution with each one of these uh, characters that they carry around, 
but we're going back and helping them find the voice that they couldn't in those moments. And that in and of itself probably is a very, that is a corrective experience in and of itself that they can give voice to it, even if the person can't respond. That's good. Yeah, exactly. So James, the, the sessions you would have watched on your bike, <laughs> it's probably, um, yeah, so you see that. I mean, one of the things that we often say in our trainings is that it's not about catharsis. It's not about desensitization. It's not about exposure to the traumatic event. It's about impacting the impacts of trauma in a way that allows our clients to grow and to become fit for life, fully alive, to use Roger's um, terms. So it's it's about helping them to access their core vulnerabilities and themselves in a way that allows them to expand their sense of who they are, first in the therapeutic context, and then, of course, in the outside world, in the relationships that they either develop or that they have and have not been able to fully access and resource prior to therapy. That's lovely. Lovely how circular this is. And I just appreciate all the years of you know, the, the pioneers, Sue, and, and, and the team and you have put into this because you can, you can change, alter, heal someone's model of self by changing their relationships. You can also change model of self and relationships by healing within, right? It's, it's, it's circular. It doesn't have to be linear. Hey, Leanne, I want to Arkansas this up. You ready? Yes. <laughs> that's okay. A, that's an adjective, I guess. You know, you were here three or four years ago. Thanks again for coming to see us. Thank you. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. We actually do have shoes and roads here, uh, but uh, we, we're, still, we're still a little bit agricultural, you know? And you don't have to go very far in Arkansas until you see a farm, and you, usually there's cattle on that farm. So anyway, Leanne's looking at me like, where are you going with this? Uh, so we have a practice here that James and I are in. We see about 1,400 hours a month of therapy. And so we were in a meeting last week, and we were just looking big picture. And the quote was, the one thing all our individual, oh, I'm sorry, the one thing all our clients have in common is they've lost their herd. Regardless of what brings them in, the various forms of pain, something's happened that blocks their ability to access their herd, their support, their relationships, their partners, and even access within self. And so the quote was, when you're working with an individual, it's important to remember that big picture, that what we're trying to do is to help people find shifts. I like what you said, to impact the impacts of trauma so that that person can move back towards the ability to co-regulate. So I wonder how, if you were in the room with us that day, how would you respond that all clients have lost their herd? Ah, I love it. It's fantastic. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, all clients have lost their herd. I guess the thing that comes to mind is sometimes, and sometimes it's not that the herd is lost. It, it's more that we are not able to receive Um, the love and the care that that herd might be, you know, standing, waiting to provide. Yeah, I mean, I think we see the the way people lose their herd. Sometimes I can't get a coherent sense of myself out enough to be received. Other times I can, but the herd can't respond to me. Or, you know, in worst cases, sometimes we got to find a different herd. 
but I, I really just so appreciate that beautiful story uh, with that guy who came in with such vivid descriptions uh, of the clear sense that the herd is going to hurt me, right? right? The herd is unsafe. I must divide myself from the herd and even divide myself from me. Even mirrors are a, a danger cue, right? And, and so my guess is he, he didn't have a lot of supporting uh, relationships in those places of pain either, but because he, he probably wouldn't have been able to at first. But as his apartment becomes less of a coffin, you're also preparing him to go, oh, I, I can be alive here. I can connect. I, I have something worth sharing. You know, and I love how you used his writing ability as just a little bit of a, a match to get that to get that warmth going. Yeah. Yeah. Such an honor. Um, yeah. So lucky to have met him. Um, and yeah, such a big impact on my development as a, a brand new therapist. And yeah. And then he um, ended up volunteering at a psychiatric hospital, actually, which was amazing. Man, thank you so much, Leanne. I think this was this did help push my leading edge in this way. Just once again, doing a good job in the early part of the process to get that the care model, the context, the attachment, the relations, the relational context, and then getting to hold to the emotion and finding out about the parts of themselves that they've disowned. Or these particular, like I guess, because this is one thing that Leanne really is good at, we didn't get to ask her about, is finding these scenes in these parts of their story where they lost a voice and the therapist go into the scene and then help them find, like, and I'm right there with you. This is Leanne. I'm there. I'm going there with you. I'm in that room with you right now. And as I sit there with my hand on your back. What is it you would need to say to me now that you, that little girl couldn't say that? Am I, am I kind of catching what Leanne does there? Yeah, that's right. The scenes are so powerful because again, we need to remember that emotionally focused therapy is an experiential therapy. And those scenes allow us to recreate an experience, an experience that was intolerable to experience. Um, And, and, and when we, can join people in those scenes, the scene becomes tolerable. And that's when we can help them to either be in their bodies or tune into that younger self or that adult self who couldn't be there or whatever the case may be, and to then join them in um, helping them to access that emotion that was impossible to access at earlier times. And that's the corrective emotional experience. And that's the magic mm. of therapy. of EFIT. Lovely. I can't let you off without one last question. Uh, sure. and, and when I teach and train, I, I, I often sort of quote you here. So uh, without your permission. So uh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> just, just being someone who's watched you do a lot of work. I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 sessions. I guess that's not that many, but. You, maybe more than anyone I've ever seen, um, seem less concerned about triggering your clients, less concerned about exceeding their capacity. You're more likely to sort of dive in there and then see what happens and we'll, we'll handle it. And I think a lot of us as therapists can be just a little tentative. We're afraid to exceed tolerance and capacity, which I think are useful ideas. But I would love to hear your philosophy of if in doubt, go get it, you know, join them in that place with your full self, go into the memory, go into the pain, 
Maybe you've already answered that in ways, but I'd love it if you could just comment just a touch more. Well, for the last 30-ish years here in our community, in addition to doing lots and lots and lots of therapy with individuals, couples, and families. I've also done a ton of assessments, mostly in the areas of trauma and loss. So I really do think about tuning into the client's landscape, and that helps me to know about window of tolerance, not, in, not only in terms of self and personal coping resources, how do people move um, with and through their emotion or not, um, but also what kinds of external resources are out there. And when we're working with couples or families, we have a, you know, a a window into that in our therapy spaces. So when, when I proceed in the way that you're describing, which it is true, I get this feedback a lot. It's with the confidence that um, my, that people are resilient unbelievably resilient. Um, I heard Sue say that in her podcast, and we've been spending lots of time together and writing and um, watching tapes, and um, people are amazingly resilient. And we have a model um, that we can rely on. Um, So we can rely on people's resilience. We can rely on the model. And, and I think with time, we can rely on ourselves to be able to hold and manage whatever happens. So in the context of couple therapy, if I set up an encounter and it's not, you know, beautiful and perfect and there's edges, then I know that I can reflect, um, track and reflect and validate and bring them back to the one tiny second, just in that moment, when his eyes touched your eyes, just in that moment, not when he said da 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 and not when his voice changed and not when his body language, but it just in that second. And the same is true in individual therapy. If I can um, stay connected and join with the client, um, then I can, um, I can hold whatever needs to be held. And again, I think the tango is brilliant. And, you know, we were using it for years before Sue um, brilliantly put it together and um, created an illustration and made it just so much more clear. And I think a big part of what moves four and five do is help us to contain that, help us to then bring things back and ground our clients and ourselves and anchor uh, all of us in the therapeutic process in terms of the session, but also over the course of therapy. So um, it is true that I do. Yeah. And Leanne, I think you gave us, and I think it's important as we get ready to close out, you helped us understand why you can do that. You trust attachment science. You trust the map that EFT has given you to follow the trail of following with the motivation and power of attachment. And then also there's a part where you have emotional capacity and regulation capacity for yourself as a person. So you are willing to, in a sense, um, <clears throat> I know George normally gets this, but like in a sense, you're not afraid to put on your fire suit and go in the burning building. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think Leanne would agree with this too. I think it's important to remember, if I choose to not go into pain, 
because I think their tolerance is not there yet, which is a good thought, or because I'm afraid, which is not such a good thought, I think it's important to remember they're going home with that. Yeah. It's already there. It's not like me bringing it up causes it to happen. They live every day with the pain of that that memory or that experience that's both disorganized, chaotic, and they're alone with it. So I think it's worth the risk. That's all I'll say about that. No, that's good. And she gave us a good way of conceptualizing the tango as a regulatory process in and of itself. You're correct. In the beginning, we're organizing, getting it clear. We drop down and move to and distill it. And that is where we will work at heightening and getting it up and hot so we can pass it over in this enactment, which could be emotionally provocative. But I liked how she framed moves four and five as regulatory. It grounds them back. What was it like to hear? What was it like to share? Oh, look at what you two did. And then you're in five. This is where you were before. This is what you changed. Man, look at how it's impacting. And it kind of does. It's like almost like and when you do that over, it's like I like the term reps, reps and repetition and repetition that titrating experiences each time you round that tango. I like that frame. I never thought of it that way. Leanne, thank you so much. I think you've given us some definitely gold nuggets. And what we'll do for you all is we'll make sure to put links to where you can go find the EFT primer book that Leanne wrote with uh, Sue. And also we'll put link to the ISF website to where you can go find um, their eFit training. It's good stuff. They have it on eFit and they also have some videos on some more mod- some trauma work. So Leanne, thank you so much for everything that you shared. Really appreciate you. Thank you so, so much Thanks, for all that you do and for having me on your show. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our honor by, by far. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We hope this experience helps you push the leading edge in your work to help people connect with themselves and with each other. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a five-star review. You can contact us at pushtheleadingedge at gmail.com. And you can follow us on our Facebook page at Push the Leading Edge. You can follow Ryan on Facebook at Ryan Reyna Professional Training and on his website, RyanReynaTraining.com. You can follow James on Facebook and Instagram at DocHawkLPC. You can also check out his website, DocHawkLPC.com. Music